I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. You know what I forgot recently? I forgot that we're in a global pandemic. Uh, with the, the, the protests and other things going on in the news. Our government is falling apart. You got people protesting uh, for what I believe is a rightful cause. And then because of those protests, you start to see uh, creepier news about who actually started the fires and who actually like broke the windows to begin with to start the looting. All these horrible things make you think, well, everything here in America is just horrible. I kind of forgot we're in a pandemic. Uh, I still wear the mask when I go out to Target and the grocery store and things like that. But beyond that, eh, you never really think about it now. I've been getting together with friends here and there, and uh, it feels normal. I take my walk through this warehouse area uh, by my neighborhood, (coughs) and there's distilleries there, and everyone's sitting outside, you know, shoulder to shoulder, with no masks on. And you see people... Weirdly jogging to these things, wearing their dumb spandex outfits and like sweating and breathing all over everyone. Yeah, they jog up there and they sit around and drink the beer from the distillery and they, they chat with their friends. Families on bikes without masks, uh, biking up to the distilleries and stuff to go with their kids even. And then said, kids are the most diseased things on earth. Anyways, I even personally started to kind of forget about the pandemic a little bit. Uh, and then my daughter is going back to her job working at the grocery store, uh, which is adorable. Her first job, she's 14. She's uh, bagging groceries. And uh, she, I pick her up and she'd tell the most adorable little work stories. And it just makes me think about my first job. And, oh, it's so great. All the people, the characters that she deals with and all that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, what's different now is that uh, people with disease are walking around and, and she's going to spend six to eight hours there and it's going to get on her. And she's not as well trained in the arts of germophobia as I am, where she will, uh, you know, come home, burn those clothes, shower in bleach, and then put it in out. She's just going to go straight to her bed and pull out her phone and stick her fingers in her mouth and God knows what else she'll do. Yeah, the worst part is she probably won't even wear a mask half the time. Uh, I read a study that said if everyone wore masks in public, it drops the risk of getting the virus, you know, by 90%. And that uh, just like New Zealand, we could have been out of the, we could have killed the virus pretty much effectively. uh, And we would have been back to tracing each person coming into the country. Uh, We would have done it within like a few months. Um, but, you know, now it's a political issue and nobody wants to wear the mask because it's uh, well, freedom, at least here in America. So uh, the whole thing's weird. And I'm like, oh, that's right. My daughter's going to be a disease bringer and she's going to come striding into my house with all their disease. Oh, I forgot about this. Oh, that's right. Now I got to worry about that again. I got to de-louse her as soon as she comes in the house. Another reminder of COVID? Uh... I'm getting furloughed again for three weeks. 
So I gotta sign up for unemployment and everything, and unemployment never pays you enough money to cover your bills. Uh, what do I gotta do now? Do I gotta start selling t-shirts or something? I have no idea how to get through this. So, I forgot about COVID, but COVID's back. Boy, howdy. So, maybe this next chapter of Tom Sawyer will allow me to lift my spirits and uh, have some hope. Let's dive in. Well, as with the last episode, uh, I'm not going to go over the history of the author because we already talked about it in the first chapter. So we have a fun fact about Mark Twain. Jefferson Beauregard Clements, <clears throat> which is not his real full name. He does have a full name that I forgot what it was, but uh, his pen name is Mark Twain. Uh, he was said to be born prematurely on the 30th of November, 1835, and everybody, including his mother, uh, that there was no hope uh, that he would survive. So that's a fun fact about our author. Let's read the next chapter. Chapter 3 Tom presented himself before Aunt Polly, who was sitting by an open window in a pleasant rearward apartment, which was bedroom, breakfast room, dining room, and library combined. The balmy summer air and the restful quiet, the odor of the flowers, and the dowsing murmur of the bees had had, that's always weird, their effect, and she was nodding over her knitting, for she had no company but the cat, and it was asleep in her lap. Her spectacles yeah, were propped up on her gray head for safety. She had thought that, of course, Tom had deserted long ago and she wondered at seeing him place himself in her power again in this intrepid way. Uh, he said, Mayn't I go and play now, Aunt? Yeah, what, already? How much have you done? Oh, it's all done, Aunt. Tom, don't lie to me. I can't bear it. I ain't, Aunt. It's all done. Aunt Polly placed small trust in such evidence. She went out to see for herself, and she would have been content to find 20% of Tom's uh, statement true. But when she found the entire fence was whitewashed, and not only whitewashed, but elaborately coated and recoded, and even a streak added to the ground, her astonishment was almost unspeakable. She said, oh, Well, I never. There's no getting around it. You can work when you got a mind to, Tom. And then she diluted the compliment by adding, But it's a powerful seldom you're mine to, I'm bound to say. Well, go long and play, but mind you, get back sometime this week, or I'll tan you. Yeah, she was so overcome by the splendor of his achievement that she took him to the closet and selected a choice apple and delivered it to him, along with improving a lecture upon the added value and flavor of a tree took to itself when it came without sin, through virtuous effort. And while she closed with a happy scriptural flourish, he hooked a donut. Now then he skipped out and saw Sid just starting up the side, uh, outside stairway that led to the back rooms of the second floor. Clods were handy and air was full of them in a twinkling. They raged round Sid like a hailstorm, 
and before Aunt Polly could collect his surprise faculties and sally to the rescue, six or seven clods had taken personal effect, and Tom was over the fence and gone. Ah, there was a gate, but as a general thing, he was too crowded for time to make use of it. His soul was at peace. Now that he had settled with Sid for calling attention to his black thread and getting him in trouble, Tom scared of the block and came round to a muddy alley that led to the back of his aunt's cow stable. He presently got safely beyond the reach of the capture of punishment and hastened toward the public square of the village, where two military, in quotes, companies of boys had met for conflict. According to previous appointment, Tom was general of one of these armies, Joe Harper, and bosom friend, general of the other. These two great commanders did not consent to fight in person, but being better suited to the still smaller fry, but sat together on an eminence and conducted the field operations by orders delivered through aides de camp. Tom's army won a great victory. After a long and hard-fought battle, then the dead were counted, prisoners exchanged, uh, terms of the next disagreement agreed upon, and the day for the necessary battle appointed, after which the armies fell into line and marched away. Tom turned homeward alone. As he was passing by the house where Jeff Thatcher lived, he saw a new girl in the garden, a lovely little blue-eyed creature with yellow hair plaited into two long tails, oh, white summer frock and embroidered pantalettes, the fresh-crowned hero fell without firing a shot. A certain Amy Lawrence vanished out of his heart and left not even a memory of herself behind. He had thought he loved her to distraction. He had regarded ah, his passion, his adoration, and behold, it was only a poor little effervescent partiality. He had been months winning her. He had confessed hardly a week ago. He had been the happiest and proudest boy in the world only seven short days. And here, in one instant of time, she had gone out of his heart like a casual stranger whose visit is done. Oh, he worshipped this new angel with a furtive eye till he saw that she had discovered him. And then he pretended he didn't know uh, she was present and began to show off in all sorts of absurd boyish ways in order to win her admiration. Yeah, he kept up this girl grotesque foolishness for some time. But by and by, while he was in the midst of some dangerous gymnastic performances, yeah, he glanced aside and saw the little girl was wending her way toward the house. Tom came up to the fence and leaned on it, grieving and hoping that she would tarry yet a while longer. She halted a moment on the steps and then moved toward the door. Tom heaved a great sigh as she put her foot on the threshold, but his face lit up right away, for she tossed a pansy over the fence a moment before she disappeared. <laughs> oh, the boy ran around and stopped within a foot or two of the flower, and then shaded his eyes with his hand and began to look down the street, as if he had discovered something of interest going on in that direction. Presently, he picked up a straw, began trying to balance it on his nose with the head tilted far back and as he moved from side to side in his efforts he edged near and near toward the pansy finally his bare foot rested upon it his pliant toes closed upon it and he hopped away with the treasure and disappeared round the corner 
Ah, but only for a minute, only while he could button the flower inside his jacket next to his heart. Or next to his stomach, possibly, for he was not much posted in anatomy and, and not hypocritical anyways. He returned now and hung about the fence until uh, nightfall, showing off as before. But the girl never exhibited herself again, though Tom comforted himself a little with hope that he had been near some window meantime and had been aware of his attentions. Finally, he strode home reluctantly with his poor head full of visions. Uh, all through supper, his spirits were so high that his aunt wondered eh, what had got into the child. He took a good scolding about clotting Sid and did not seem to mind it in the least. Uh, he tried to steal sugar under his aunt's very nose and got his knuckles wrapped for it. He said, Aunt, eh, you don't whack Sid when he takes it. Well, Sid didn't torment a body the way you do. You'd always be into that sugar if I weren't watching you. Presently, she stepped into the kitchen, and Sid, happy in his immunity, reached for the sugar bowl, a sort of glorifying over Tom, which is well-nigh unbearable. Uh, but Sid's fingers slipped, and the bowl dropped and broke. Tom was in ecstasies, in such ecstasies that he even controlled his tongue and was silent. Ah, he said to himself that he would not speak a word, even when his aunt came in, but would sit perfectly still till she asked uh, who did the mischief. And then he would tell, and there would be nothing so good in the world as to see that pet model, quote, catch it, unquote. He is so brimful of exultation that he could hardly hold himself when the old lady came back and stood above the wreck, discharging lightnings of wrath from over her spectacles. He said to himself, and now it's coming. And the next instant, uh, she was sprawling on the floor. The potent palm was uplifted to strike when Tom cried out, Hold on now, what are you belting me for? Uh, Sid broke it. Aunt Polly? Yeah, paused, perplexed. Tom looked for healing pity. Yeah, when she got her tongue again, she only said, Oomph. Well, if you didn't get a lick of miss, I reckon. You've been into some other audacious mischief when I wasn't around like enough. Then her conscience reproached her, and she yearned to say something kind and loving. But she judged that this would be construed into a confession that she had been in the wrong and discipline forbade that, so she kept silence and went about her affairs with a troubled heart. Tom sulked in a corner and exalted his woes. He knew that in her heart his aunt was on her knees to him, and he was morosely gratified by the consciousness of it. He would hang out no signals. He would take notice of none. He knew that a yearning glance fell upon him now and then through a film of tears, but he refused recognition of it. He pictured himself lying sick unto death and his aunt bending over him, beseeching one little forgiving word, but he would turn his face to the wall and die with that word unsaid. Ah, how would she feel then? And he pictured himself brought home from the river, dead with his curls all wet and his sore heart at rest. How she would throw herself upon him, and how her tears would fall like rain, and her lips, oh, pray God, to give back her boy, and she would never, never abuse him any more. But he would lie there cold and white and make no sign, a poor little sufferer whose griefs were at an end. So he so worked upon his feelings with the pathos 
of these dreams that he had to keep swallowing, or he was likely to choke. And his eyes swam in a blur of water which overflowed when he winked and, his, and ran down and tickled the end of his nose. And such luxury to him was this petting of sorrows that he could not bear to have any worldly cheeriness or any great delight intrude upon it. It was too sacred for such contact. And so presently, when his cousin Mary danced in, all live with joy of seeing home again after an age-long visit of one week to the country, got up and moved in clouds and darkness out of one door as she brought song and sunshine in at the other. I wandered far from the accustomed haunts of boys and saw desolate places that were in harmony with his spirit. A log raft in the river invited him and he seated himself upon its outer edge and contemplated the dreary vastness of the stream, wishing the while that he could only be drowned all at once and unconsciously without undergoing the eh, uncomfortable routine devised by nature. Then he thought of his flower. Oh, he got it out, rumpled and wilted. It mightily increased its dismal felicity. He wondered if she would pity him if she knew. Would she cry? and wish that she had a right to put her arms around his neck and comfort him, or would she turn coldly away like all the hollow world? This picture brought such an agony of pleasurable suffering that he worked it over and over again in his mind and set it in upon it in varied lights till he tore at it threadbare. At last he rose up sighing and departed into the darkness. About... At half past nine or uh, ten o'clock, he came along the deserted street to where the adored unknown lived. He paused a moment. No sound fell upon his listening ear. A candle was cast a dull glow upon the curtain of a second-story window. Was the sacred presence there? He climbed the fence, threaded his stealthy way through the plants till he stood under the window, and he looked up at it long and with emotion. Then he laid him down on the ground under it, disposing himself on his back with his hands clasped upon his breast and holding the poor wilted flower. And thus he would die, out in the cold world with no shelter over his homeless head, no friendly hand to wipe the death damps from his brow, no loving face to bend pityingly over him when the great agony came. And thus she would see him when she looked out upon the glad morning, and, oh, would she drop one little tear upon his poor, lifeless form? Would she heave ah, one little sigh to see a bright young life so rudely blighted, so untimely cut down? Now the window went up. A maidservant, discordant voice, profaned a holy calm, and a deluge of water drenched the prone martyr's remains. The strangling hero sprang up with a relieving snort, Ah, there was a whiz, as of a missile in the air, mingled with the murmur of a curse, a sound, as a shivering glass followed, and a small, vague form went over the fence and shot away into the gloom. Not long after, as Tom, all undressed for bed, was surveying his drenched garments by the light of a tallow dip, so the bucket out the window, uh, from what I know about uh, way back when, everyone had bedpans. You took dumps in a pan. And uh, for the most part, they just tossed it out the window, usually to like an area of the house they don't really look at much. And I'm kind of wondering, is that uh, what he got hit with? 
Who just throws a bucket of water out their bedroom window at night? But, oh well. I'm reading too much into it. Sid woke up, but if he had any dim idea of making any references or to illusions, he thought better of it and held his peace, for there was danger in Tom's eye. Tom turned in without the added vexation of prayers, and Sid made mental note of the omission. Well, the upside about Mark Twain is that the guy writes short chapters, which I love, compared to a sunshine sketches of a little town. Man, those chapters went on forever. They'd be like an hour and a half. As I'm sitting there reading and trying to be all excitable while I'm reading, in the back of my head I'm thinking, oh my God, this is not ending. When does this end? Uh, Same with the, the picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, God, those chapters went on forever. This, nice, nice, short, little, punchy chapters. If anyone would ever ask me uh, what I think of the great American writer, Mark Twain, as so many people have gone over his works and have studied them and their importance in American literature, uh, if they ask me, I'd just say, oh, they're great little punchy chapters. Just real fun, real fun and short. Uh, little snippets. I love it. How do I tie this in with COVID from what I was talking about before? Uh, I can't really. I mean, I guess he's wishing for death. So maybe I should stop thinking of COVID as being a scary thing or a highly inconvenient thing with uh, the furloughs. Maybe I should think of it as an opportunity for me to fake my own death just to see who who cares. I mean, my kids would care because they wouldn't be able to come over here anymore and uh, eat my food. There wouldn't be any food in the fridge. Uh, I imagine my dad would care, maybe my sister and brother-in-law. I don't know. I should really map this out. Now that I'm thinking about it, I should fake my own death to uh, to see who shows up at my funeral which I'll bet you anything is going to be the next chapter. He's going to probably wind up faking his own death. I think that's one of the parts of the story is that he fakes his own death just to watch everyone in the church uh, wail and complain about it. Well, anyways, this entire episode has been dark and uh, horrible, but um, thanks for listening. And uh, I hope you tune in next week to listen to chapter four of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer.